You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Hello everyone, Annie here for Solidarity Breakfast. Today we've got lots of juicy morsels for you. First up, Professor Jenny Hockey, part of the team that fought to bring to public eyes the Palace Papers, the letters of Sir John Kerr, who was the public face of the removal of the Whitlam government in 1975. We follow with what must be the speech of the week from Eileen Daly at the launch of Life, Living Incomes for Everyone. We hear from East Gippsland about deer hunting and Kevin Healy rounds up the week. We finish with a chat with former industrial officer Tony Evans on his views about Australia's economic future and where the government thinks workers fit. Well, brothers and sisters, what a show of strength we've got here today. Local issues. So I'm here at the school, kids strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMARC. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. There's about 200, 250 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminawaya Mōbohina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. Feed Radical Radio. Your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. Professor Jenny Hockey, with a determined team of pro bono lawyers and a force of crowdfunding supporters, have been in a fierce legal fight with the Australian National Archives for the release of the letters between Sir John Kerr and the Palace that would reveal the machinations that led to the dismissal of the Whitlam government in 1975, a defining moment in Australian democracy that Australians have not been allowed to see. The recent victory at the High Court, one to six, in favour, has finally allowed the public disclosure of the papers. Today we will hear the conversation Professor Hockey had with Liam Byrne, the ACTU historian, at a recent webinar run by the ACTU Institute to celebrate the victory. Well, the Whitlam government was fundamentally a really reformist government. I I think, you know, when you look back at that government, uh, in in government for three years, uh, often forgotten that it had a second election victory in 1974, um, a massively important government in terms of a number of reforms, 
many of them we continue to just accept and take for granted now. I mean, if you look at things like uh, votes for 18-year-olds, um, one vote, one value, the Senate uh, representation for the for the territories, all of these things were Whitlam government initiatives, um, uh, no-fault divorce. Uh, I could go on and on, but, you know, of course, massive uh, spending on education, free tertiary education, um, opening up our foreign affairs, having a truly independent position. You know, we had we had to use the British national anthem as our own national anthem <laughs> until the Whit- Whitlam government. So, look, just on so many levels, and I won't go into that in too much detail, but but an extraordinarily important government. And I think one of the great areas of, of significance was that there had been 23 years of continuous Conservative government before the election of the Whitlam government. And I not only think that that's what marked the government as so uh, such a wrench with the past, because it was, but it also made things extraordinarily difficult for the government because the entirety of the public service, the way things had been done, the whole expectation of governance was a Conservative one. Most of the people who are in public service at senior positions and so on had never worked with the Labor government. Uh, they didn't understand the caucus system. They didn't understand what was basic to Labor Party function. So, look, a lot of difficulties, I think, uh, came about because of that, and not not least of which was that the opposition, the uh, Liberal Country Party coalition, as it was then, had no experience with and no desire to be on the opposition benches. And they fought tooth and nail to destroy the Labor government from the moment it came in. And what about Whitlam himself? Obviously, he's a very uh, you know, evocative figure. He's somebody who um, has had a band named after him and so on. <laughs> written a two-volume biography of it. What was he like as a person and what was he like as a Prime Minister? Well, look, I'll answer those in two parts because um, I was lucky enough to be able to interview Gough Whitlam several times and, you know, I think got to know him reasonably well over a 10-year period as I worked on that biography. I've written three biographies, as you said, and I had never before had the opportunity to actually speak to the person I was writing about. So this was an extraordinary, um, you know, and a really welcome part of the biography. I was able to actually get the subject's uh, views on a range of matters Um, He never asked to see the book before I finished it, which I think is quite extraordinary. It was always my book. It was my view. uh, And he was very respectful of that position I had. It was just not an approach to the work that I could take to do it otherwise. Um, And as a prime minister, I think think in terms of the reforms, I think he was exceptional. I think his breadth of knowledge, his breadth of understanding of policy areas was second to none. You know, and this reflects in turn the biographical interest in him as a person and his family. His family was highly unusual. Uh, his father was Commonwealth Crown Solicitor. He was a scholarship boy at, um, oh, goodness, I've gone blank. But but so the family was not actually, um, it's often said Whitlam was a silver tail. It couldn't have been further from the tr- truth. It was a family that um, managed to get ahead because of education, because of their own personal brilliance. And one of the things I actually found that caused a great frisson in the family was to uncover through the uh, Victorian archives that Whitlam's grandfather had been a a youthful criminal and had actually ended up in uh, Pentridge for four years when he was only 18 for forging uh, his employer's cheque to himself when the family was destitute and their own father had disappeared and left a family of five and the young 18-year-old who Gough Whitlam was named after, Henry Hugh Gough Whitlam, had tried to use his employer's money to pay the rent and other things. There was a really poignant story, including with letters between the great-grandfather and Whitlam's grandfather of only 18, pleading with him to come home and support the family. 
So I had to uh, then trek up to Sydney to tell Gough Whitlam that his grandfather that he knew and he'd grown up with and that he was named after had actually been in Pentridge. So this was, you know, one of the unexpected ways in which biography can intersect with your fam- with your subjects. Mm. real knowledge and, and in effect their life because uh, that moved him greatly. Mm. I think the research behind it impressed him greatly too, I have to say. So, look, you know, I found him, I found him an, a, a, a very unusual individual for, for a range of reasons, not least that extraordinary historical knowledge that he prided himself on, but he grew up in Canberra. His father had moved to Canberra as Crown Solicitor in 1927, so he understood nation building, literally, uh, he always believed and understood the differences between the arms of government. He respected them. And it's another of the great tragedies, I think, of 1975 that shocked him at a very deep personal and political level how the individuals in those institutions could have behaved the way they did. It was not as he ever expected. It was not like the different people he'd grown up with as a child. And I suppose he had a, you know, he always had a very sort of uh, rosy-coloured view of the parliamentary system, the parliamentary structures, and, of course, what he always called the great Australian Labor Party within that. Um, yes, and the only other thing I'd say about that is I think he was in many ways more or equally as exceptional as an opposition leader because he took a party that had been riven and, and torn apart by the 1954-55 splits and pulled it back together again. As John, I think John Menadue said, he taught the Labor Party how not to split um, because it was still divided at that time. He had to have intervention in Victoria, as many of you would know. So, look, a complicated character, but one that lets you look at Australian history in such a fascinating way. It was a great, a great joy to write that biography. Well, it'd be a wonderful experience to have uh, to met with Goff and to talk to him. Um, and one of the things talking about the, you know, his role as opposition leader, it really struck me. Uh, looking over your first volume of your biography, is that role that he played in policy development, the oh. really, really extensive policy development that went on over a period of years, drawing upon a whole series of intellectual connections um, from outside the Labor Party itself. But just his capacity to grasp the different issues and tie them together seems to be quite extraordinary. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that, that is a remarkable feature, as I, as I said. It's, it's the, the, the capacity in opposition to really remake the entire platform. You know, if you look at the difference between the Labor Party platform um, when he came into Parliament, which was in the early 50s, right through to when he finally became uh, Prime Minister, you know, it's totally transformed. There's barely a single thing in it uh, that hadn't come in because of the work of those policy platforms, the developments, the committees um, on such a range of areas. And it meant that when they came into office, you know, he always said it is a, that the electoral result was, a, was a, not just a mandate for office but a command to perform. And he was going to perform and he would just work through what he called the program and apply and implement every one of it. So he had a, a very activist view of government. I think it surprised many people. Many people before he came into office saw him as a sort of to the right of the, of the Labor Party. Um, and so I think the extent of those reforms surprised a lot of people. But, but yes, he was, it was all built on the work that had been done in opposition. Mm. And did that have much of an effect, that sort of that vigour for change and that desire really to start moving things quickly? We were talking before about the sort of public service getting used to 23 years of conservative government. I mean, imagine by the end of that, they got quite routinized or quite used to a certain way of doing business. And all of a sudden, there's this jolt of sort of energy coming in. Did that kind of lead to some friction uh, within oh, the different levels of government? I think it did, but it's interesting looking back to the 
coverage of the first two weeks, which was, of course, the duumvirate, the, the government of two himself and Lance Barnard, because they were still counting seats at that time, um, and the actual full government didn't come in for another two weeks. Um, and, and, and they took administrative decisions. They obviously, obviously couldn't make parliamentary legislative decisions, but they took a range of really important uh, uh, decisions that didn't require the recall of parliament. Um, and the first off the, off the rank was to release uh, from jail um, young men who'd been put in jail for refusing to go and fight in Vietnam. And that was more than just a symbolic first decision. It was a critical decision because these were men who could not vote at that time. Men as young as 20 did not have the vote till they were 21. And those who, who refused to go, and it was a very unpopular war and many did refuse to go, were in jail. And he released them, and, and he and his Attorney General Lionel Murphy released them immediately, the first decision. And that was just the first in about, I think, 40 major decisions that were then made over the next two weeks. And it really was, I described it as like a starter's gun. It was like, this is what we're doing. We're already on the way. So it was a period of great excitement too. You know, I think we forget how much positivity there was about the government and the great sense of excitement and renewal. Um, up until, funnily enough, even though it won the next election in 1974, and you would think that it would then be unassailable. If anything, the opposition's attacks intensified and there you, you began to get this terrible inability to really work in Parliament because of the obstruction that was being faced at every level. But I don't think that began in earnest until probably late 74. Mm. And what's the role at this time, of course, of John Kerr? I mean, who, who was John Kerr uh, as, a, as a person? Obviously, he occupied the position of Governor-General. And where does he fit into this story? Well, the first thing to say about John Kerr is that he was deeply antithetical to the Labor Party as it became after the split. Let me get that out there. <laughs> this is a man who was asked if he would consider leading the DLP. It's often said that he was a Labor man. If he was a Labor man, and it's a pretty loose term, he was a Labor man before the split and he was a Labor man that aligned himself with the groupers that left the, that left the Labor Party. And there's an article from Kerr in the mid-50s where he says, I could never rejoin, and he had been a party member apparently previously briefly, I could never rejoin the, Labor, the unreconstructed Labor Party as it is now. He saw them as quasi-communists. Um, the other part of Kerr that he was infamous for was for jailing the tram, Tramways Union leader, Clary O'Shea. Uh, for refuse, Clary O'Shea refused to hand over his union uh, books and refused to hand over a union fine. And, um, you know, John Kerr nearly caused revolution in the street among the union movement by marching O'Shea off to jail. You know, it was just extraordinary. So he was, you know, the notion that he was somehow a Labor man, I always have to sort of, laugh at because uh, it, it, it's a Labor man in the context of the most divided period um, in the 50s over industrial matters in the, in the Labor Party and beyond. So that's his immediate background. There are others who have more interest in his, you know, what was clearly a security background during his wartime service, and I'll leave that for them to take up. <laughs> but um, he was, before his immediate appointment as Governor-General, the interesting thing is that he was already the the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of New South Wales. He'd barely been there a year when he began negotiating with Whitlam and he wanted a great deal more money and a better clothing allowance and a pension and so on before he'd come across. Um, but it should have been alarm bells to Whitlam that somebody in a position of power and, and real prestige, as Kerr was as Chief Justice of New South Wales, so quickly was prepared to entertain what most people thought was a nominal position to go and open fates. 
Um, and I think it indicates that Kerr had a much more activist view of his role, and that's clear he did. He believed he was in many ways above the Prime Minister, above government, and he certainly acted as that, and these letters show that. Now, this is a very big question, and so I apologise in advance, but if you were to give a sort of brief rundown on the dismissal and what actually took place, what it was, what people need to know about it. I'll try and be quick. Um, well, <laughs> Relatively speaking, quick. Okay. Um, the Senate, have, which did not actually have a majority of the, of the opposition after the 1974 election, um, replaced two Labor senators. One of them went to the High Court, the other died. They were replaced not by Labor senators. They were replaced by the choices of the Conservative state governments. In itself, a total scandal. They'd only been elected 18 months earlier. So you had two Labor-appointed Labor senators who were replaced, one by somebody who said he would not vote against the supply bills, but the other, the critical one, said that he would. And, in fact, his words were, I, the only reason I took up this position was to destroy the Whitlam government. Uh, ultimately, it destroyed him and he reached a very sad end that I won't go into. But I think, anyway, um, out of that, supply was blocked. Uh, we had a new vernacular, a new ter- political vernacular, the blocking of supply. It had never happened before. Supply was never rejected. I should point out that it was never rejected. Three times the bills were put to the Senate and three times the opposition returned it to the House of Representatives, demanding that the government call an election. Now, of course, the government had had two elections in the previous three years and was not about to call a third. Whitlam always said that if the uh, supply bills were not passed, he would call a half-Senate election. And the half-Senate election was due at that time. It was the only election available to him. He had no intention of going to another double dissolution, having just called one 18 months earlier. There was no secret about that, and yet it's it's very rarely spoken about, that Whitlam had a plan, he had an intention, it was the half-Senate election. The number of times I've read this last week that Whitlam refused to call an election is another thing that simply, uh, you know, I find staggering, given that he was at Yarralumla, that is Government House, on the 11th of November 1975 to call the House Senate election. Mm. So, um, look, it came to a head on the 11th of November. Whitlam had told uh, the Governor-General, Sir John Kerr, that he would be calling the House Senate election. He and Kerr had exchanged the paperwork. I found all this material in the archives. They exchanged the paperwork since the 6th of November. So for four days, Kerr had known that the, that the election would be called, the Senate election. Um, and Whitlam arrived at Yarralumla, he thought, to finalise that process. He and Kerr had spoken that morning, agreed on the meeting, agreed that they would sign off on the House Senate election, and instead Kerr just dismissed him without warning, um, without any indication whatsoever, uh, having told him they were going to call the House Senate election And that's why Whitlam always described it as an ambush. He was there to call an election. Um, And worse than that, uh, Kerr then put in in Whitlam's place the leader of the party that had lost the previous two elections. He chose, the Governor-General simply chose who was going to form government. He chose the leader of the opposition. To me, uh, that is, you know, there are several really shocking aspects about it, but that is one. The second is that um, that afternoon, about an hour later, Parliament reconvened, and it's often forgotten that the House of Representatives continued to sit, as did the Senate, and they passed a motion of no confidence in the Fraser government. Fraser lost that by 10 votes. They called on the Governor-General to reinstate the Whitlam government. The Speaker of the House was sent to Government House to convey that to the Governor-General, and Whitlam should have been reinstated, supply had been passed, the whole thing would have been over. 
Instead, the Governor-General took it upon himself to refuse to recognise the Speaker of the House of Representatives in the Parliament of Australia. It's a shocking moment. Mm. Uh, I call that the second dismissal because he went ahead and dissolved the entire Parliament, leaving in place Malcolm Fraser as Prime Minister and Government. All of the benefits of incumbency in the election that then followed went to the party that did not have the confidence of the House, that had not won the last two elections and was simply installed by the Governor-General, and I've called that the second dismissal. And in many ways it's, it's worse on a par with the dismissal of the government itself because it was a dismissal of the entire parliamentary structure at that point. Mm. Can you just explain to us what the palace letters actually are and what their significance are, are, is? Well, <clears throat> they're letters that are between the Queen and the Governor-General, Sir John Kerr. Um, uh, they're headed at, at, in their cataloguing that they concern the dismissal of the Whitlam government. They're actually, the whole file is actually all of the letters between Kerr and the Queen through her private secretary um, at over his entire tenure. So there's a three-and-a-half-year period, just over three years, of these letters. But, of course, the most intense letters and the ones that people are most interested in are the ones around the months of the dismissal, probably from about, you know, early 75 right through to the dismissal and, and, the, um, and the election. And the great significance of these is obvious from the two people uh, who are writing to one another, but it's also because I'd spent a lot of time in Kerr's papers in the archives. A lot of that material went into my book, uh, the biography. It was where so many things were revealed, including the role of Sir Anthony Mason, a High Court judge that none of us knew about before. That was kept secret for 37 years. So, so look, the Kerr papers are important. They were vitally historically important. And here was a big part of them locked away. The reason these letters were locked away, even though they were in Kerr's papers, in Canberra, I should say, in our national archives, is because they were labelled personal. Now, you know, in itself, that sounds ridiculous. How can letters between the Governor-General and the Queen at such a critical time in our history be seen as personal unless there's hundreds of letters talking about the races and the corgis and, you know, the Queen's morning teas at time, which none of us anticipated and thankfully are not there. Um, so, you know, I knew that something was amiss and that uh, even more surprising was I was told that they were under embargo by the Queen, by the Queen. So the Queen is preventing us looking at really important historical records in our own archives. And, I mean, initially there was nothing I could do about that because. Uh, personal records don't even come under the Archives Act, so you can't appeal, you can't go to the AAT as you normally would, the Appeals Tribunal. I would have to have taken a federal court case. Now, you know, I'm an academic. I don't have pockets that are quite that deep. <laughs> the thought of going to the federal court and potentially beyond that was just not possible. It was only many years later, about six years later, um, I, I read something that Tom Brennan, who is one of the barristers on the case, uh, had written, and I contacted him and said, I agree totally, these letters should be Australian letters, and we ended up talking about that. And, you know, I always say I went in there to talk about my book, The Dismissal Dossier, and came out talking about a court action. It was a real bringing together of history and deep historical archival research, which I'd been working on for a long time, all found its way into the case book, the evidence book that went up to the court because it was a mix of history and, of course, law. The intense legal argument came from the lawyers, but all of these materials that we'd be, I'd been working on for so long, I suddenly saw them take another form and another shape in, in the law. And that became, to me, very interesting, seeing that sort of conceptual link. 
Um, so, look, I, I have found it very enjoyable. I can say that, having had a victory at the High Court of 6-1, and I don't know quite what I'd be saying if that hadn't been the case, but, but it's been a remarkable decision, a very, very important decision more broadly than just the letters. It's been all about bringing history into the public. You know, it's an absolute outrage that we should have a gap in our history, that we should be unable to know our history because it might unsettle the Queen. My, my surprise about the letters actually began during the court case, um, and that is the vast number of letters. There's over 200 letters. There's 1,200 pages in total because Kerr was an obsessive writer and he attached voluminous um, attachments to his letters, but he was writing sometimes three or four times a day. None of this is usual. All of this is completely out of the ordinary. Um, Governors-General usually wrote to the Queen or the monarch and reported on a perhaps a quarterly basis, sometimes only um, twice a year. Um, and, and yet here we have a Governor-General giving a running commentary in an extremely negative way about the government that he's just been appointed to be Governor-General for. The most stark uh, uh, suggestion to me um, is just how intensely cavilling John Kerr is against the government, even from the very first letter in which he claims that the proclamation regarding the joint sitting after the 1974 double dissolution may be illegal. He actually uses that term. It could be illegal. This is, this is, this is the proclamation that is going to announce the historic joint sitting. Um, and it was subsequently taken to the High Court. And of course, the High, High Court ruled that it was not illegal. But why is the Governor-General suggesting to the Queen's private secretary that an action of the government that he is there representing could be illegal? It's quite shocking the way in which this, um, uh, this disparaging of the government is a feature of every single one of these letters and there are points at which that starts to move into an outright statement that there may be things that he will not follow the advice of the government on. You know, these are truly shocking for anybody that is interested in the way in which a parliamentary democracy in a constitutional monarchy is meant to work, mm. in which the Governor-General acts on the advice of the Prime Minister. Um, so I found that deeply unsettling, Kerr's attitude, his negativity to the government, his clear statement of points that he will not accept the, uh, the, the, the uh, advice of the government, and even more troubling is that, is, that, is that the Queen, through her private secretary, engages at key points in those concerns that Kerr raises. And, of course, the most important one of these are the letters concerning the use, potential use of the reserve powers, which they discuss. Are there any reference in the letters to Kerr seeking advice from Garfield Barwick? Yes, there are. And it is clear that he spoke to Barwick on more than one occasion. Um, uh, it, it's been on the public record that he spoke to Barwick in the days before the dismissal. He got advice from Garfield Barwick. One of the things that both, you know, and the, the moral sort of framework of these people I, I've been deeply troubled by, but what you see unfolding in the letters are a series of things that indicate falsehoods in public statements by some of the key protagonists, and Barwick is one, and so is Kerr. Kerr and Barwick always maintained they had no other conversations than this one before the dismissal, which was, of course, done in secret and in defiance of the Prime Minister anyway. He had advised Kerr not to speak to Barwick and there are particular reasons for that, which were cogent regions, reasons. Um, but they also spoke at a dinner in October, in September, sorry, 
which both of them denied they they were both at no that was on the public record both of them denied that they had any discussion about the constitutional issues um Barwick particularly in his um in his memoir uh Kerr however writes to Sir Martin Charteris the Queen's private secretary on the night of that dinner and reports back on the conversation that he had with Barwick about the constitutional issues so yes he do, they, they they are raised and they are discussed and there's no doubt Kerr was taking advice from someone who was a Liberal Party figure, former Liberal Minister, of course, uh, former Liberal Attorney-General, um, Garfield Barwick, and also the advice of the opposition shadow Attorney-General, um, Robert Ellicott, rather than the clear advice he'd been given by the Crown Law Officers, that is the Attorney-General and the Solicitor-General. It was the Queen's Private Secretary and asking what you make of, of his role and what that represents in this process. Like, did he speak for the Queen effectively? Yes, look, he did speak for the Queen, and I think it's really important to acknowledge that, 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 that um, it, it's as if there's an attempt in some quarters to say um, there's a plausible deniability has been the term used. I mean, this is just, just not the case. Um, you cannot write to the Queen any other way than to write through her private secretary. The official uh, nexus of communication, if you like, is through the private secretary. So some of the letters are actually by Sir William Heseltine, who was the second in command as private secretary, so the, the next in line because Charteris was away. So clearly it's not the personality, it's, it's, the, it's, the, um, it's the position, and the position was official private secretary. That's the only way that Kerr could have been, um, that who, that, that's the only one who could have been writing back to Kerr. Kerr occasionally sent a letter directly to the Queen, but all of the, all of the letters back from the Queen are through Sir Martin Charteris. So um, there's no way in which it can be claimed that the Queen um, was not speaking through these letters. And there are also many references throughout the letters from Charteris saying to Kerr, the Queen is reading every one of your letters. She's enormously interested. She thanks you so much for your 13-page dissertation on the events in Darwin and all of the attachments, and she um, and, and, and she wants me to convey the following. So there's no question that these are matters that are have the imprimatur of the Queen, and they need to be seen in that light. Did the letters provide any insight into Kerr's relationship or attitude towards Malcolm Fraser after he became caretaker Prime Minister? Um, I, the one thing that strikes me through the letters, there's not a lot, lot of discussion about uh, Fraser on a personal level other than that Kerr knew him already through previous um, previous committee they had sat on, uh, I think Fraser had chaired, um, and uh, or Fraser had convened. Um, but, um, but, the, but, but there's a stark difference between the way in which he relates to Fraser as Prime Minister compared to the way in which he related to Whitlam as Prime Minister. Um, there's an intense negativity about his relationships with Whitlam. Problems are raised at all times. The possibility that there will be a crisis, Whitlam may need to go to another election, is said in the very first letter when, you know, he's barely been in a job for, for six weeks and Whitlam's only, only just two months earlier returned from an election, the second in 18 months. So... Um, there's a lot of sense of um, I describe it as undermining of the of the government under Whitlam. Quite the opposite under Fraser. Fraser is treated with respect. He's treated as a legitimate head of state. He's uh, sorry, you know, head of government. He's uh, he's everything you would have expected uh, Kerr to have conveyed to in his discussions about Whitlam, which he did not. So I think it's more the contrast between the way he treats those two individuals as Prime Ministers that comes out to me from the letters. What opportunity do you think there is for similar things happening in the future? Could this happen again? 
it could absolutely happen again. And this is why, um, and I should say I'm a member of the Australian Republican Republic Movement National Committee, and I think that if we want it not to happen again, we have to, you know, really get our heads around how we move to a republic that is going to be acceptable to the, the different views out there on how that might function. And to me, the key lesson to come from this is that you have to protect the formation of government through the House of Representatives. That's the fundamental question here. The Governor-General overrode the wishes of the House of Representatives. That's, that's the great damage done, in my view. Um, had Kerr reinstated the Whitlam government, um, as the House of Representatives instructed him to do, uh, we would not be sitting here today. There might have been different issues arising, but nevertheless he would have respected what the Parliament wanted. And the Parliament, after all, is the embodiment of our electoral decisions. Every time we go and vote, you know, the product of that vote sits there in the Parliament and forms a government. And the government is formed by whichever party has the confidence of the House. Whitlam had the confidence of the House and it was reinstated that afternoon. He had a solution which there has never been any cogent reason and nor is there anyone stated in the letters as to why Kerr didn't simply follow the Prime Minister's advice and call the half-centre election. That is a purely partisan decision. It has to be seen only in those terms because no other reason is given. He gives no valid reason and, in fact, he gives no reason why he didn't continue to call the half-centre election as he'd led Whitlam to believe he would. A letter to you on a cassette Cause we don't write anymore Gotta make it up quickly There's people asleep on the second floor There's no aphrodisiac like loneliness Truth, beauty and a picture of you You'll be walking your dog in a few hours I'll be asleep in my brother's house You're a thousand miles away With food between your teeth Come up for summer I've got a place near the beach There's room for your dog There's no aphrodisiac like loneliness Truth, beauty and a picture of you There's no aphrodisiac like loneliness Truth, beauty and a picture of you there's no aphrodisiac like loneliness Youth, truth, beauty, fame, boredom and a bottle of pills There's no aphrodisiac like loneliness Feel 
Back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR, your community radio. This week saw the launch of a fighting group called Life, Living Incomes for Everyone, a coalition of unions, social welfare organisations and individuals who are not prepared to let the federal government to throw people back on below poverty level payments in September with the reductions in job seeker and keeper payments that are, have already been announced. Eileen Daly from the South Australian Anti-Poverty Network opened the proceedings. Hi, everybody. I'm speaking to you from the lands of the Ghana people here um, in Adelaide. Um, well, here we are, folks. 2.2 million people receiving the coronavirus supplement just had their income slashed by $300 per fortnight come September. That includes 1.6 million unemployed and single parents, students and young people. And then up to 3.5 million people on JobKeeper, many of whom won't get their jobs back in a hurry, if ever, slowly having their income slashed to a maximum of $1,000 per fortnight for full-timers and $650 for casuals in January. And then all the people who are living on savings, super and charity, who missed out on any support at all, including many, many casual workers, recent migrants, international students and asylum seekers, and a massively increased hidden unemployed, up to 700,000 of the so-called discouraged workforce who are not looking for work because there is no work available. Add to that all the people languishing around or well below the poverty line on the age pension and the disability support and carers pension who receive no supplement at all, and the scale of the crisis that we're facing begins to take shape. And then you can throw in for good measure all the workers whose jobs over the last decade have been casualised or made part-time. Many workers thrown on the scrap heap during the demise of the manufacturing industry, people in the so-called gig economy, and even those regarded as sole traders, 
who are in reality just workers who no longer have a secure place in the labor force. Add that all up and what we're contending with is a crisis of the capitalist economy not seen since the 1930s and the Great Depression. To be clear, none of this was entirely unforeseen, nor is it a result of the COVID-19 medical situation alone. This crisis was coming at us before COVID. And in fact, it could be said that there's been no actual recovery in the global or the Australian real economy, the one that we all live in, since the GFC of 2008. Simultaneously across the, all the so-called liberal democracies, we've experienced a major crisis in the political system and the political class itself, with levels of distrust and hostility rightly at unprecedented levels among the general public. You'll note, though, that in the midst of this dismal forecast for ordinary people, some are doing just fine, thanks. Just the other day, I read how the sales of luxury cars are booming and the stock markets and currency traders, give or take a few sacrificial lambs, are still bouncing those trillions around the globe and making considerable financial gains. Prior to this March, many activists and community organisations have fought for years to lift the abysmal New Start payment, not raised for 26 years, and all the other payments and services which support so many people disregarded because they aren't seen as directly feeding the profit-based system. The human toll of this meant thousands, hundreds of thousands of people in a state of bare existence, skipping meals, living in substandard housing or homeless, detrimental effects on our physical and mental health, and the pervading sense that we were discarded on a scrap heap, not of our own making. And I wanna pay tribute to some of those groups now the anti-poverty networks of South Australia and Queensland. And I just want to give a shout out to all my compadres at Anti-Poverty Network SA who are having a live launch gathering over there at Hope's Cafe in Adelaide. The Fair Go for Pensioner Groups around the country, the National Council of Single Mothers and Their Children, the Australian Unemployed Workers Union, stalwarts in, in representing the rights of of unemployed workers, the Tomorrow Movement, campaigning for social and economic justice for young people, the Say No 7 and No Cashless Debit Card Australia, who fought for years against the barbarism of forced income management, the Not My Debt Group, who valiantly fought the appalling robo-debts, which led so many to take their lives, which are arising like zombies from their own supposed graves at the moment the migrant groups who organise relentlessly for their communities, the disability activists fighting for the rights of the disabled and their carers, the public housing and renters' rights groups around the country, particularly in Victoria, the list goes on. For a long time, we had few friends, some staunch NGOs and church groups, some sympathetic journalists and academics, and some from the social service and health services who saw the destruction on a daily basis in their work. Even shifting the brutal narratives about dole bludgers, burdens to the taxpayer and surplus to requirements, cold economic commentary took years of persistent and rigorous pushback. And even now, these narratives lie in wait, ready to be utilised by this government and their media lackeys. But into the fray has come the grassroots unionists individuals, branches, and regional and city trades and labour councils who represent mostly low-income workers, just that bit above the poor on the economic ladder. And with them, they've brought the serious issues of underpayment, assaults on the awards system, wage theft, casualisation, and the biggest question of them all, just where are the jobs going to come from in the future? 
These are people who know that Solidarity Forever is not just a song you sing once a year while you manoeuvre to get yourself or your faction bumped into Parliament. They and we all know it's all the same struggle. We are all part of the working class, whether we can physically work or not. And together we won't stop till everyone in this country has a dignified standard of living. This array of groups and individuals in essence forms the backbone of the Living Incomes for Everyone campaign. And we aim to keep building until the vast majority of ordinary people resident in this country join us in a movement that really can change the nature of things. We've only been organising for six weeks, but the momentum is growing rapidly, with nearly 70 organisations now endorsing our demands and more coming in every day. And our demands are threefold. But first, it's very important to say that we completely reject the government's cuts to people's incomes announced today. There's no social, economic, nor moral justification for it, except that it keeps filtering wealth from the poor to the rich. And we'll be refining our responses to this latest attack in coming days. So to our demands, we demand that the current job seeker rate, including the coronavirus supplement, be kept as a minimum of $550 a week. Here we have something tangible at last to defend, and it's no king's ransom. It doesn't even take unemployment benefits in this country to the average benefits across the OECD. It still leaves people in hardship, and it isn't the last word from us on what is really required to live a life. We also demand that JobKeeper be retained at its current rate until such time as people no longer need it, and that it must be extended to all those who missed out. But crucially, we also insist that it needs to be given directly to workers rather than allow employers to rot it as they have, and as many are threatening to do, sack workers while they recover because they don't want to pay for entitlements JobKeeper doesn't cover. Our second raft of demands is no one left behind. So we demand that all other payments, the age pension, the disability support pension and carers, off study, and all the youth allowances and parenting payments to be raised to $550 per week as a beginning. We won't tolerate the divide and rule tactics of this or any other government or those of the policy wonks who spend sleepless nights trying to work out how to give crumbs to Paul and take away from Paula. We will counter this divisiveness strongly, whoever is implementing it, including among our own ranks, where sometimes people get snagged in a sense of scarcity and fight for the crumbs with others who have little. We demand free childcare, recognizing the disproportionate burden of raising children on women and a massive increase in public housing to ensure everyone has a home they can afford, as well as providing an infrastructure project that will create jobs. And crucially, we demand a significant increase to the minimum wage, which lies at the guts of all government and business attacks on wages. Lastly, but not least, we demand an end to the punitive nature of the social security system, so-called mutual obligations, making people jump through hoops for their measly living and punishing them when they can't meet the impossible and irrational tasks set for them. We need to dismantle the privatised multi-billion dollar job provider industry who have inordinate power over people's lives, the constant threat of forcing you into compulsory income management, all the work for the Dole programs. So many of these programs trialled in blatantly racist manners in Aboriginal communities before being rolled out to everyone else. We need to put the employment sector, services sector, firmly back in the hands of government, but a government that in turn is under the control of the people, away with all punitive measures. We know what its function is. 
If you can punish and dehumanize people at the bottom of the economic heap, you provide a deterrent for workers not to get above their stations and demand better wages and conditions. You can force people into shit jobs, low paid and onerous, and expect them to cop it sweet. Finally, people ask what is the difference between life and all the other campaigns and positions around raising the rate and so forth. And here's our view. We recognize the need for advocacy, but we're not primarily advocates. The advocacy and lobbying model hasn't got us very far over the many decades it's been viewed as the only way to change government policy. We don't intend to become yet another institution speaking up to the powers that be. We're speaking around and across to our own people. We're building a movement. We believe that impoverished and low-income people are more than able to build our own campaign. In fact, we think that's the only way we'll ever achieve our rights and our dignity. Our movement will grow well beyond this immediate crisis until we build a society and an economy that has human need, not the greed of a few, as its foundation. We have big plans through our composite groups for a week of action starting September 18th, when the government will begin implementing their plan for us. And I hope that you'll join us in this and the Living Incomes for Everyone campaign in the coming weeks, months and years. Thanks, everyone. East Gippsland Dispatch. Voices and stories of community and resilience from East Gippsland. Hello, this is Fiona with another East Gippsland Dispatch. Today you're hearing from Gary Plumley, who is a graphic designer, fisherman, diver and deer hunter. Since the Gippsland bushfires, the feral deer have spread further and wider than ever before. Gary's business, Samba Night Stalkers, is turning this feral deer problem into an arts-based food, fibre and fashion business opportunity. Gary is talking at the Barn Cafe in Kalimna, East Gippsland, with Nilmini De Silva and Stephen Liaros. This week, Gary talks about what made him start and what constraints he's overcoming. Could you tell us how this all started? I'm 67 this year and I retired down to East Gippsland about seven years ago. And I hadn't been an active deer hunter Uh, but an active conservationist, bushwalker, fisherman, organic gardener. And every Monday morning, I drove my wife at 5.30, 5am, down to the train station in Bensdale. And just up the road here near Forest Tech, where you know the Glowack Bush Cafe is, is the main crossing for deer, and the breeding females cross the highway there to go down into near Malang Homestead and along the rainforest gully towards Meetown. And on one morning in August, coming back up the highway, an IPEC told delivery truck in front of me, two deer walked out in front of it, a full-grown female and a half-grown, and the truck missed the female but clipped the half-grown deer. It slid down the side of the truck, folded the window in in my little Toyota hatchback I was driving, and the mirror folded in, and I pulled the vehicle up, the truck kept going, and I got out, and there was a fairly injured deer on the side of the road. Luckily I had a fishing tackle bag in the back and I dispatched the deer because I knew how to do that in a humane way. And then I thought, well here I am on the side of the road at 6 o'clock in the morning and there's this beautiful deer that doesn't have a mark on its body. So I loaded it into the back of the hatchback and I took it home. And it started a sequence of dinner parties that we had with other local community using fresh roadkill that a number of us had found. I then decided that it was time to get back into hunting. 
and with, there was such a deer problem, I then reapplied for my gun licence after a 28-year break and got myself licensed, purchased some rifles, and at the time I thought, I'm getting too old after a knee and a hip replacement to climb up and down rainforest gullies on weekends and up in the alpine country. And I got to know a lot of property owners around the back of Lakes Entrance and Kalimni here, and I asked them about their deer problem, the wineries, the rainforest cabins, and they all had a common problem. So I set up a community business to harvest deer. And what I needed to do was to research government approvals, processes, and I found a loophole in the Act that allowed me to get permission, a written permission from a private landholder to hunt on their property. Spotlighting at night is totally banned in Victoria. You'll lose your, you'll lose your vehicle, your guns, massive fines. Yet the loophole was that it was legal to hunt deer at night on properties. As a nocturnal animal, they were causing havoc. At the winery, they were coming into the vegetable garden. They had stripped the citrus trees in the kitchen garden. They, they were quite brazen at night. So I set up a, a set of rounds. I had to clear it with police because I was shooting in close proximity to houses and other properties. Um, I defined what were called safe shooting corridors that I would take a shot unless it was away from not only the properties where I was, properties over the valley or across the way. Um, not many random hunters or spotlighters would know what was over the hill or across the valley in the middle of the night. So using Google Earth mapping, I created some very in-depth maps where I identified, and every property that I hunt on, I get them to define their property boundary on that map. We sign off on that. That started it. And this is where we end up here today, talking to you good people from Float who are collaborating on, uh, on this new economy project. Can you give us some kind of picture of the size of sure. the deer population? Yep. Are there many of these tracks? So, in, in terms and, and, and sorry, of... Okay. When you first started, you described yeah. yourself, and I was in, you said you were, you were a conservationist, a bushwalker. Organic farmer. Organic, farmer. O- organic gardener, yeah. Oh, what else? Keen fisherman and a diver, and a yachtsman. Liverboard yachtsman. So that's fisherman, diver, yeah. and oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. ocean sailing liverboard yachtsman. Right. Yeah. All deer in Australia were released by the Victorian Acclimatisation Society. Read the zoo. The Zoological Societies of Australia. Back in the 1850s, samba deer were bought from India. Hog deer were bought from Sri Lanka and Burma. Hog deer are the residents on the coastal strip from anywhere now from Orbost to Wilson's Promontory and on the offlying islands. But the, the original releases of deer were three deer at Tonnenbuck in Victoria, which is down in the start of Gippsland, past Pakenham, and three deer or four deer at Rubicon up behind Eel in the 1850s or 1870s. And those six or seven deer have, were released for hunting like rabbits, foxes, all the animals at the Acclimatisation Society. Out at Werribee Park where the zoo is, the Free Plain Zoo out there, was Churnside Park and that was the home of Sir Thomas Churnside. Thomas Churnside was the founder of the Acclimatisation Society in Australia and so he bought red deer to hunt on the hounds the same as he did in England and because the land around Werribee was so flat, those deer were pushed by the hounds and the the horsemen but they ended up in the Grampians. So we have they, they kept going until they found refuge, which is quite some way away, but the red deer are in the Grampians as a consequence of... Samba deer is an Indian release. A mature Samba stag will go over 300 kilograms. He's as big as a Hereford cow, and it will be around 180 kilos maximum. 
The last one that was hit on the road here was massive, was 200. They have never been allowed to be farmed like the European deer were. They're quite an aggressive animal, and but there have been experimental farms. There is still one down near Tonemba that's run by the Victorian Deer Association. Sorry, and this is a samba deer? There's, sam- yeah. there's a samba deer the samba. Yeah. enclosure and you can go down there and study them in that enclosure under invite. So they're, they're an enigma. They are a, an animal that doesn't, until recently, never lived in a herd structure. When they were first released, I was the secretary of the Australian Deer Hunters Association back in the start of the, oh, I think the late 70s, and we employed a game biologist. Um, he predicted that the deer that hadn't got to East Gippsland back in the 70s would be in Canberra by the year 2010, and they were. Listen again next program when Gary Plumley of Sambar Night Stalkers will speak about the new legislation which, if passed, will allow for mobile food processing units, leading to deer becoming a primary food source. This is Stephen Pigram from up Broomway, Yauru country, and it's great to be down in Melbourne and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio. Been here for a long time. A weak solidarity, Becky team listener, when how COVID has turned our world upside down. Now we can get arrested if we walk into a bank not wearing a mask. Then again, they've been robbing the community mercilessly for eons without any need for a mask to mask the real bank robbery. Okay, okay, I imagine our listener is screaming at the radio, wrong, Kevin, wrong, the bank's the one place you're not allowed to wear a mask, showing they place their profits ahead of our health, but then that makes them a microcosm of what we've been experiencing anyway, and I wasn't prepared to let an incidental like the facts get between me and a very bad joke. A sort of a comedy, using the term loosely, comedy version of US of the UN of the US of the world, big supremo Donald trample the pause normality. As we stay locked down and masked up, enjoying the benefits of the super efficiency of the neoliberal mantra of contracting out government services like, say, overseeing quarantine hotels, not the high point of the pejorative Dan's terms of government, we have to admire the imaginative alternatives being offered by the caring business class party supremo and would-be big state supremo Michael No Brain. Such innovative, deeply researched gems as the government has to do better, not good enough, and similar displays of scorching policy brilliance. Uh, What would you do, Michael? Better. I do better. Yes, but but doing what? Doing better. Look, could you just elaborate a bit? Certainly. Doing better because this government is not good enough. He certainly knows how to hit the mark. Then again, already in office, the aforementioned Donald Trample the poor was making Michael Nobrain look like Mensa material. People should ignore science, he declared. Not that that on its own is a knock on his renowned intelligence. Greatest intelligence ever, ever. Because he's not alone there. World leaders have been ignoring science for years, none more proudly and intelligently than our very own. Climate change is crap. Climate change is crap. 
Realising the health of a fossil economy is paramount in any way, they always tell us the environmental impact of whatever they're up to will be... There's no jobs on a dead economy. But Donald has differentiated himself by declaring the science addressing COVID-19 should be ignored because it doesn't. They don't know what it they're talking about, unlike how he knows what he's twitting about and talking about, telling a slightly sceptical interviewer, like roughly 100% sceptical, that the US of is leading the world in conquering the COVID enemy. The envy of the world. People ring around the world. Which is true, of course, but I'm pretty sure he meant they him. And the interviewer kept insisting the US of is right up there as one of the worst in the world. And I think the problem was they were at cross purposes. Donald meant best in the world at being the worst in the world. Best pandemic rate ever, ever. Best death rate ever, ever. No, I can't get away with that. Donald did say the US of was number one. He said number one for the lowest mortality rate in the world. And he asked a lackey to confirm that. And the lackey confirmed that, showing they tell him anything he wants to hear. And somehow, despite that, the interviewer remained 100% sceptical. Obviously an anarchist, commie, democrat purveyor of fake news. And during the week, our big supremo, Scuttle Them More Lash Son, a.k.a. Scummo, had a chat with Donald and told us they had compared notes on the COVID virus and on reopening their economies. Emphasis on the latter, I suspect. How educational and informative it would have been to have been able to listen in on that meeting of the minds. Although the way cybersecurity is going, someone probably was. More leaks and holes than a private security lot at a quarantine hotel. But by midweek, there was an apparent about-face by Donald at his first daily update since putting in his bid for the Nobel Prize for Medicine by recommending we all inject ourselves with disinfectant. This an unprecedented seeming bout of honesty and an association we'd never have imagined honesty and Donald, but it'll get worse before it gets better, he said, indicating, despite the polls, he's still feeling confident of winning the election. Back to ignoring the science. After declaring they were being guided by the medical and scientific advice, because those experts knew what they were talking about, unlike the climate change, if there is such a thing as climate change charlatans, Scuttle them has now decided he knows better than the medical experts and the economic scientists take precedence, advising that we must cure the health of the economy, get the balance right between a healthy and an unhealthy population, living, breathing, lovely profits and non-living, non-breathing, unlovely collateral damage. Thank goodness when it comes to climate change, there is such a, the true blue Aussie capitalist review is a true believer in the science, exemplified by its editorial Wednesday, we should follow the science on coal seam gas, it headlined. See, there's 404 people giving evidence at a New South Wales inquiry into a Santos out the environment proposal for a coal seam gas mine at Narrabri. Environmentalists and farmers concerned it will destroy their environment, groundwater, waterways generally, a whole list of threats they claim. Or 
and this might give us a clue where the capitalist review is going on this one. When I say environmentalists and farmers in affected communities, the editorial exposes them as, quote, implacable anti-Narrabri environmentalists and farming representatives who, along with assorted ragtag rural populists, and again, quote, extreme greenism, new age nimbyism, complex green tape regulation, unnecessarily delaying major projects. But can you see which side the editorial is coming down on? Tough one, but there's a couple of clues there. Yes, in this case, the media spokesperson for the greatest little economic order of them all tells us the science confirms clearly shows more and more fossil extraction is as safe as. See, they don't ignore the science. Although that would upset poor Donald, of course. Back to on compulsory masks, expressing concern for his workers, shopping the workers' association, note not union, secretary Gerard DeWire, people upset with me, said if the, sorry, the police could not enforce the regulation in retail premises, then should send in trained killers. Wouldn't that be comforting, confronting trained killers marauding your local supermarket? And doesn't it endorse Gerard's working class credentials? They, the trained killers, could solve the little problem of not having the power to find us by enjoying the great perk of the job and just shooting us. In the apropos of not much department, a telead tells us the way to lower our cholesterol is to slather our bread with this margarine or some form or other of make-believe butter. Just mentioning at the end, it'll work along with a clean act of lifestyle. And I'm prepared to bet if our cholesterol levels did drop, the clean act of lifestyle would have a hell of a lot more to do with it than the make-believe butter, and reduce it lots more if we avoided the make-believe butter altogether. On Gerard's inspired idea to have trained killers in every supermarket aisle, come September they could also shoot the impoverished thrown back into the economic scrap heap after the government weans the unemployed and low-paid workers off money, forcing them to scrounge for food and accommodation and placing them fairly and squarely in the sights of the trained killers, preserving our freedoms. And congratulations to Socialist Party Supremo and would-be Big Supremo Anthony All Being Uzi for giving the government the idea, not that they needed his help in reducing the poverty-stricken to more poverty-stricken, but Anthony's contribution to his dedication and commitment to workers whom he so cares about was to attack the JobKeeper scheme because... It's still too low, I hear you say. No, no, because many workers were getting more than they were getting before the scheme. Uh, these people should receive no more than the pittance they were getting, he advised. How encouraging for all when the Socialist Party Supremo calls for workers to get less. Finally, Anthony and Gerard should get together and compare notes on their unflinching commitment to working people. Good morning. You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. We are coming to the end of the show. The announcements from the federal government regarding the cutting of JobKeeper and JobSeeker payments in September and the large debt accumulated through the COVID pandemic has led me to seek out a conversation with a person who has been writing issues papers around tax workers and government policy for quite a while. 
Tony Evans has worked for years in trade unions in South Australia, so has a working knowledge of how government policy could work for the good or bad for workers. One of the quotes that you uh, took from John Felzon I thought was so interesting, inequality is neither a personal choice nor a national tragedy, it is a choice governments make. And you also point this out in relation to the mini-budget and the uh, way the government's going at the moment. You say that the it's entrenching inequality and this is because of the way the government decides to go about what it's doing. Do you want to talk about those kind of concepts? Well, the way I, the way I see things, the, the government is uh, driving down the uh, price of labour by making labour more plentiful. Uh, so it becomes a buyer's market for employers and they can, uh, they can hire people cheaper. That increases profits. So that's why I say there's a class character to this uh, crisis, which isn't a health crisis, although people generally regard it as being a health crisis. The crisis was in fact uh, impacting on business investment as long ago as 10 years or even further back, long before there was any hint of uh, infections and viruses and so forth. So you point that out in relation to the uh, tax, company tax and stuff like that. The money that's going to be lost because of uh, the cut in company tax was already afoot, wasn't it? Yes, yes. Uh, that, that had fallen uh, by, uh, I think, $13 billion last financial year, which was a fall of uh, something like uh, 14%. And uh, during the economic shutdown this year, it's going to contract by only $12 billion. So the contraction in company tax collections was actually larger last year than this year. When the uh, last year, the economy was running... At, uh, at what was supposed to be normal. The crisis was well with us uh, last year. We just didn't notice it. Well, Josh Frydenberg starts off in his usual uh, public relations way, uh, and people see it as being common sense. He starts off talking about things like, this is the biggest deficit that people, bigger than anybody's ever seen before. Actually, that's not true, is it? The Second World War was... Uh, no. No. Tell us about that. The thing about the numbers that, that I can find and that uh, delegates and activists can find in the uh, ABS yearbooks that are all up on the, on the ABS website going back to the year dot is that at the time of the Second World War, they didn't have the concept of gross domestic product. So you have to, you have to uh, search through the documents to find the equivalent, which is gross national expenditure. And uh, uh, depending how you define uh, the equivalent to uh, gross domestic product or GDP, as it's called, the, the deficit was... Uh, uh, anything between 120 and 240 percent in the war economy. So that leaves the estimates now for uh, between 33 and 50 percent uh, 
a day. Not on the same scale at all. Very quickly, we're going to turn to the issue of who's going to pay for all this. I uh, have more than a sneaking suspicion that it's going to be workers like you and me. Well, I'm retired, so they can't get any more out of me. Uh, the stone's been bled, or it's going to be bled. But uh, one of the reasons why company taxes have been falling is because the corporate lawyers had been uh, doing their job well, too well, and uh, the result is that nearly one-third of Australia's largest companies don't pay a cent in tax, which means that there's hundreds of billions of dollars of taxes going uncollected because uh, uh, offsets are being claimed, sometimes legally, sometimes uh, not so legally or on the borderline. So a new company tax system based on taxing turnover instead of profit, but uh, 3.5% with some additional uh, levies would raise about $1 trillion extra in company taxes over the next 10 years, together with a reintroduction of wealth taxes. So what we'd end up with is uh, sufficient additional income to cover all of the expenditures from memory on public hospitals, government schools, water, the environment, housing, in one hit. And governments would be able not just to uh, reduce the budget deficit, but to increase spending on public goods, that is, on things that benefit people, and in particular, uh, the low-paid workers who uh, face very high marginal tax rates and pensioners who are without uh, large amounts of savings uh, and therefore are dependent on the pension for all of their uh, income. The, the government characterises a large parts of the Australian community as being um, dead weight. They are completely focused on business. And I noticed that uh, one of the things that they've done is actually during this pandemic extended the uh, amount of money for business loans to up to a million dollars. Uh, I mean, that hasn't been given a lot of airspace, but uh, it seems like an inordinate amount of money. Uh, but the implication is that these businesses make all of these things happen. However, in order for this uh, Australia to actually weather this kind of storm, you need to actually rejig the economy so that it includes the community as well as the uh, well-being of the environment, don't you? They're not mutually exclusive. Yes, uh, no, look, uh, one of the uh, one of the little uh, 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 sayings they've uh, been putting around is uh, is about lifters and leaners, and uh, the inference is that uh, the unemployed are leaning uh, while the business is doing all the lifting. Well. Uh, 
the the leaners, the ones who aren't doing any work, are the 700 big corporations that don't pay any tax. Uh, meanwhile, the, the workers are creating most of the value that, uh, that is uh, realised in products and services. Their surplus value is extracted in order to create profit. If you take away the uh, the manufacturing workers and the truck drivers and the and the shop assistants and uh, and so on, then there is nothing. Just as we've discovered that nurses and many other feminised parts of the labour force are invaluable in times of crisis. And uh, we realise that we're not paying them well enough. We're not rewarding them for their efforts and their skills. So the story that they peddle is very one-sided and is inaccurate. What's your view of the um, uh, the way they've approached job seeker, job keeper and job trainer? They've got these levers on the economy and the future of Australia in that respect. What are the outcomes going to be? Well, I think uh, the reduction over the next six months on JobKeeper alone is $50 billion compared to the previous six months from March until September. So from uh, September through to March, there'll be $50 billion taken out of the economy and workers won't, won't have that money to spend. That reduces demand uh, and drives unemployment up further and that's why they're predicting, Treasury's predicting, the public servants and Treasury are predicting that unemployment could reach 10 and a bit percent by December, up another three percentage points which when you throw in the, the people who have uh, been discouraged out of the labour force and who can't get the hours they want, would it mean that the unemployment rate would be about 22 to 23%, nearly a quarter of the workforce. Uh, that's depression level rates uh, of the 1930s. So if you go back to your original statement that you believe that they're creating a slush fund of uh, workers... Reserve Army. A reserve army of workers, yeah, uh, which points directly to the fact that they're more interested in the business class and they're not particularly interested in the entire running of the country. So their priorities and the priorities of the, uh, the Australian population are actually not the same. Not at all. Uh, not at all. The problem is, of course, that... Uh too many uh, people don't see their class interest because they think of themselves as either not being workers because the colour of their collar isn't blue or because they think that they'll be all right, Jack, in the old Australian idiom and that uh, they work hard so they'll be looked after by their employer. Uh, their employer is reasonable. Uh, and uh, that they'll be all right. The problem is that their employer uh, is part of the capitalist system. If they don't play the game, then they'll go under and they'll take their loyal workers with them. People uh, 
want to be part of a working proposition. But uh, when you have a government that is quite clearly so unable to see the benefits overall for the whole country, they don't have a broad enough view to build a future that's useful not just to the majority of people but also to the business class as opposed to the multinationals. I think they see that the system will work uh, best if it is allowed to clear the surplus labour and the surplus capital out of the system in order to create room for new businesses to step up to the plate and create new jobs. The trouble is, in order to clear the, uh, the debts of years of share buybacks and handouts to greedy CEOs, uh, you're going to have to drive unemployment up to those levels of to those depression era levels of 23% in real terms, and that creates misery. Capitalism is very good about creating things, but the trouble is it creates misery rather than jobs. When things go very well creates a lot of jobs. When things go very badly, it creates a lot of misery. Well, it, it, it actually goes back to a book I've just recently read about being um, John Curtin and, jo and Scullin, that uh, in their minds it would appear that uh, both Scullin and Curtin had the experience in their young lives of terrible depression. And part of the... Uh, reconstruction after the Second World War, which was in the hand of Ben Chifley, were because these men had a vision about how they didn't want people to be thrown back into grinding poverty, that they, they actually understood that their role was to improve the position of their class. Yeah, well, and uh, small businesses, uh, they, uh, they didn't forget the small businesses, although Big Iron Bob Menzies accused them of forgetting small business and won the 1949 election and part of that. Nugget Coombs was the first head of the, the, the Commonwealth Bank, which was established by Labor as a central bank in, uh, under the direction of the government. And he produced the 1945 white paper on full employment and the recommendation of that paper was reasonably enough that governments should adopt the objective of full employment which was accepted uh, to be between 2 and 3% of the workforce and such was the power of that idea that Menzies had to go along with it, or at least pretend to do so. Well, I guess what I'm really getting at is that people think, and they're going to believe, that the austerity that this government is going to enforce on people is uh, the only way things could be. But in actual fact, this is their ideological standpoint, and and it's policy-driven, not... Uh, it's not a an a priori fact that we should all be living in, in the mud, basically, except for the 1%. Yes. It's worse than that, I think. Yeah, tell me. The power of the uh, 
ideas that capitalism puts through and puts into people's heads, sorry, are so is so strong that people really believe that it's best to do what capital says, to obey the rules that capital says should be obeyed. And so when a government uh, legislates to enforce those rules by cutting spending on necessary things like health and education in order to balance the budget, people believe that this is a good thing to do. It's called hegemony, a term popularised by uh, an Italian Marxist by the name of uh, Antonio Gramsci in the 1930s. He said that the advanced capitalist system in the West uh, used the power of ideas to rule rather than naked force. So people really believe that capitalism rules for them and unfortunately, as I started to say, many in the Labor Party believe that as well. So therefore, there is a, there is a consensus around things like free trade, which, see, which has seen the destruction of nearly a million jobs in the traded sector over the last 40 years most of those being lost in manufacturing. You say something very interesting in your paper that in, people have it in their minds that uh, the reason for why they want to cut people's wages is because it's the cost that's so that has to be got rid of, that, uh, that salaries are, are huge and that uh, they are a huge percentage of uh, the overall cost of business. Now, in big business and in manufacturing, that's not the case, you point out. It's not the case in, in, in an awful lot of industries. And in big business and small business, it's not the case. So most of the costs are often uh, derived from other parts of the, of the supply chain, either in uh, the raw materials, energy costs, which are very high, because energy policy has been stuffed up completely by the last uh, seven years of uh, Liberal governments after they sabotaged the uh, carbon tax. And with our high levels of imports, a lot of our costs are actually flow from uh, overseas labour rather than Australian labour. One of the examples I gave was the, the internal cost structure of uh, General Motors operations at Elizabeth in Adelaide, where we discovered, after uh, going through the company's books, that the Holden uh, labour force contributed or was responsible for just 4.5% of the cost of the car. The largest components of the cost came uh, from the imported parts of the car brought in from uh, Japan, Europe, the US and other parts of uh, Southeast Asia. The, uh, the thing that flows from that is that, uh, and this could be quite important in the next few years, particularly if, uh, if uh, a Labor government was elected which was committed to replacing imports, we could reduce our manufacturing costs to a degree 
and create up to 200,000 jobs, according to Jim Stanford in a report he's put out today, by uh, increasing our locally manufactured share of manufacturing by by a modest 30%. Do you have much confidence in uh, the strategy of the federal government at the moment? I have uh, absolute confidence that they're... Uh, that they're attempting to uh, advance the class interest of their uh, backers in big business. Absolutely confident of that. Question is whether they'll be able to get away with it. In October, we'll be seeing uh, the size of the bill, which is indicated to us $164 billion. So $164 billion will need to be repaid from this year alone. The net debt. The total debt will top $677 billion. Workers pay almost 50% of all taxes in the deductions from their pay packets every week or fortnight, depending on when they're paid. So they're going to be targeted to do the heavy lifting if the government gets its way. The alternative is that we bill the companies who aren't paying any tax, who aren't lifting any weight, the rural leaders uh, and raise uh, together with uh, wealth taxes and uh, entertainment taxes on streaming services, similar modelled on the entertainment taxes that were levied during the war years. If those taxes are reintroduced, the alternative would be the sum of about $1 trillion could be raised over the next 10 years to pay down the debt, improve our education and our health systems and uh, be able to afford modest reductions in taxes for uh, low-paid workers like nurses and ancillary workers in hospitals without impinging on uh, on future growth or on future generations. All this nonsense about being a burden on future generations. What will be a burden on future generations is if we have a generation having to endure high unemployment and not being able to afford to buy a home. That's it for Solidarity Breakfast. Until next week, keep safe. Adios from me. Freedom, freedom Freedom, freedom Julian Assange gave us WikiLeaks He gave us the truth that everybody seeks Locked up for telling what we should know Locked up for upsetting the status quo Freedom, freedom, freedom Set him free Freedom, freedom, freedom Set him free Free Julian Assange before it's too late Free Julian Assange, let's right this mistake Free Julian Assange before it's too late. Free Julian Assange, let's write this mistake.
He told the world what was really going on Exposed lies and cover-ups Now his freedom is gone How can telling the truth be a crime? He should be a hero of our time How can telling the truth be a crime? He should be a hero of our time Freed your innocence before it's too late Freed your innocence, let's right this mistake Freed your innocence before it's too late Freed your innocence, let's right this mistake Freedom, freedom, freedom Set him free What sort of freedom is it when you can't tell the truth? What sort of society will we hand on to our youth? There's one of our own Rotting in an English jail The injustice of it all Is beyond the pale Freed your innocence before it's too late Freed your innocence, let's right this mistake Freed your innocence before it's too late Freed your innocence, let's right this mistake Freedom, freedom, freedom Set him free Freedom, freedom, freedom Set him free He told the world what was really going on Exposed lies and cover-ups Now his freedom is gone How can telling the truth be a crime? He should be a hero of our time How can telling the truth be a crime? He should be a hero of our time Freed your innocence before it's too late Freed your innocence, let's right this mistake Freed your innocence before it's too late Freed your innocence, let's right this mistake Freedom, freedom, freedom Set him free Freedom, freedom, freedom Set him free. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.